0: I'm Dave Whitaker, and this is Vinyl Snob.
1: I have a nice Techniques 1200 turntable that I also bought right out of rehab as one of my first purchases when I should have been buying a bed. That's Gavin O'Neill,
0: an avid record collector who has definitely taken things to the next level. In this episode, producer Dana Barry begins a new series... Confessions of a Vinyl Addict.
2: Um, In the 40s, Jack hooked up with the armed forces, set up a program where you could send a message to a serviceman overseas.
0: In this episode, we also venture back to Rainbow Records and talk with General Manager Steve Sheldon about the history of the company and the many innovations to the industry introduced by Rainbow founder and inventor Jack Brown. All that and more coming up later in the program. You know, with record collecting becoming more popular, there's always the possibility that it can become a little more than a casual hobby. On this episode of Vinyl Snob, producer Dana Berry begins a new series, Confessions of a Vinyl Addict.
3: So there's many types of record collectors out there, from the nothing else matters treasure hunter to the casual bin flipper. What we all have in common is a need to physically connect to the music we listen to, to see it feel it, and hear it, and to collect it. So what drives someone to squat on the dusty floor of a thrift store for hours flipping through Leo Sayre albums in the hopes of finding a twin-tone pressing of The Replacements Let It Be, or a UK Green Apple version of The Beatles Let It Be? What causes someone to buy the same record five times in order to find the perfect copy and pressing? Welcome to Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. I chose my friend Gavin O'Neill for our first interview. Gavin lives a couple of floors below me in the same apartment building. In fact, we originally bonded over our use of our closets to house our precious collections. Gavin has a unique perspective on collecting records and music in general. He's like a vinyl philosopher.
1: Bowie changes one predicted turns that my life would make and it's like what what came first i think that's a great question about records it's like did i buy records that matched the person that i was or was i drawn to records that taught me how to be a person
3: like i said vinyl philosopher
1: i've started over a lot so you know i had a record collection when i was a kid and then um You know, I had a lot of problems with addiction and stuff, and I sold a lot of records that were really painful for me to sell, or I became homeless and lost a lot of records and stuff. And then when I got clean and sober as a young person, um, I was able to kind of start over, but that was during the CD sort of revolution. I have always bought vinyl like the first thing that I bought, the first piece of furniture I bought when I got out of rehab was a turntable. Um, and so I always bought records, but I got caught up in kind of the the CD sort of mania. And then I sold all my CDs and I was able to start over really seriously collecting but almost from scratch. I mean, I had some records um, and I wound up upgrading those, you know, and, and getting better copies and better versions and stuff of those records.
3: I'm jealous of Gavin's collection. It's like a vinyl museum. He has custom-built bins to flip through. His copies are in pristine condition and perfectly fitting clear plastic sleeves. And it's limited. You'll find no guilty pleasure Billy Squire records here. You he can come upstairs to my apartment for those. Gavin's collection consists of a few genres from a certain era.
1: I'm a perfectionist, you know. Vinyl is about, for me, it's about the hunt and the quest for a perfection that doesn't exist. And so nothing is ever going to be right or good enough, but I will um, accept records in a lot of different condition. Although, you know, there's just so many crazy people selling records that just sell the worst. Just, it's just, it's difficult, you know? I mean, I think people that sell records, there is like just a, it's a trip. You find the greatest people and some of the people that are really special, unique individuals that are in a lot of pain. It's difficult to find, let's say, like a punk record or a new wave record in good condition, a first pressing of the record, because who was buying the Germs record when it came out? Anybody that even knew about that record was a disaster anybody that was into that record at that time that would actually spend money on that record they probably had friends that were prone to uh stealing from each other you would be you know using the record cover to like roll weed with and you're setting down beers on it and there's cigarette burns on it and somebody stepped on it with their combat boots and and so the only people that would have that record and be able to keep it in good condition are probably guys that worked at record stores and were just like this is weird i'm just gonna grab this off the shelf and stick it in my collection
3: i asked gavin why is it so important to get original pressings
1: i imagine you know being a kid in england and um i have my allowance money I can only buy one single and I like walk down to the record store and I like turn over my hard one like chore money and I buy that single the day you know that it's come out or a couple days after it's come out. So for me that record has it's historically accurate and it's spiritually correct. It has like a resonance or a frequency to it that is the authentic article. The fact that it has survived is important. The fact that it's in the United States, let's say. Like if I find, I'll find a record at a record store in Oakland. Like I found a record the other day, like a Generation X record um, that was made. They made 500 copies of, the band made them themselves, a little seven-inch record. And they sold them on the King's Road by hand, in person. What is that record doing at a record store in Oakland in perfect condition? It's like when I hold that record, I know that some kid bought that, maybe right outside of Malcolm McLaren's shop, on the King's Road from someone that's either in that band or closely associated with that band. And then that record has a story about how 30, 40 years later, it's made its way across the Atlantic into a record store in Oakland. And I own it. So that's important to me. I want to honor like... That kid's allowance money.
3: Gavin doesn't fool himself. He acknowledges and accepts his condition.
1: It's not even about like satiating a craving. It's actually about like stoking a craving. Like my girlfriend always says like the worst thing she could do to me would be to buy all the records on my want list for my birthday. She would like, it would destroy me because it's about the hunt and the quest for a perfection that is of course impossible and never-ending. And like I'll hunt a record for years, and when I get it, I'm happy about it, I archive it, and I'm immediately on to the next hunt.
3: So comparing myself to Gavin in terms of collecting is kind of like comparing myself to a Buddhist monk in a cave in Mount Everest. Just a little easier to get to. So I asked Gavin if there are any collectors out there that scare even him.
1: So I have a friend that I've known uh, for a long time who is a nutcase vinyl collector. He's a nurse in the emergency room and he always tells the ambulance drivers, like, dude, if you ever go to a house and the person doesn't make it and you see records In their house, you call me immediately. He's joking, of course. Well, kind of joking. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, you know, he's like, I don't even know how to explain all the stories about him. He's like up the Amazon River. He's like in the heart of darkness. He's collecting, you know, African tribal stuff. I don't even know what the hell he's doing. Every day before work, he goes to flea markets and estate sales and knocks on people's doors You know, he's one of those, like, guys, one of those genuine, like, vinyl hunters. And he'll find, you know, $2 records at the flea market and then flip them for, like, $2,000. He really knows his stuff and knows what he's looking for. It's all he thinks about. He eats, sleeps, breathes, chasing, hunting records, you know.
3: He had one last anecdote to share.
1: I saw this internet article kind of made its rounds on social media and stuff. And the title said, new study finds link between collecting vinyl and being a middle-aged loner. And then it said, are you a loser with no friends? Chances are you've got a pretty sweet record collection. Many thanks to Gavin
3: O'Neill for sitting down and sharing his insights into collecting. This is Dana Berry for Vinyl Snob.
0: And if you'd like to check out Gavin's record closet, there's a video tour on the episode six page at vinylsnob.com. In Episode 5, we took you through the process of manufacturing vinyl with a tour of the Rainbow Records facility in Canoga Park, California. On this program, we head back to Rainbow to look at the company's long history. It began in 1939 when Rainbow's founder, Jack Brown, starts a small business to manufacture cardboard recording blanks for a new home recording machine that was the beginning of it all. To get the story, we pick up our conversation with Rainbow's general manager, Steve
2: Sheldon. They were a piece of cardboard, had a plastic cover on them, and there was home units that you could cut your own record. As a kid, actually, my family had one, and I remember my sister and I recording. It was probably a Rainbow blank, I'm assuming. There was players where you would record on one side, and then you'd Play the record on the other side. So it looked like two turntables in the cabinet. Rainbow Records has a rich
0: and well-documented history in the recording industry as visitors can see in photographs
2: and memorabilia. Um, In the 40s, Jack hooked up with the armed forces, set up a program where you could send a message to a serviceman overseas. So these people you see are lined up. This is at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. They're lining up to record a message to send over. Our name's on the bottom of these blanks. And what's kind of cool is probably now about three, four times a year, I'll get an email. Someone says, I found this record. I'm, my parents passed away. I'm cleaning out their house and found this record. And I think my mom or dad's voice is on it. And I've actually got a guy coming in tomorrow who lives locally who said he found one and he wants to know if it will play. So I told him to come on by. While many other uses for the cardboard recording blanks
0: were found, Jack Brown never stopped inventing. And in 1955...
2: It paid off big time. Jack invented the paper record, which we made hundreds of millions of those. Um, They lent themselves to promotional usage, to political messages. You could mail them in the mail as a postcard and play them. Um, And then the largest uh, order for them was on the back of the Wheaties box. Um, which had the Musketeers album, the record, on the back, and um, we made $31 million of those. It was around this time that
0: Rainbow began a very successful relationship with the Mattel Toy Company. One of the first products was the Chatty Cathy Talking Doll. Now today, that's no big deal. But remember, this was 1960. Television broadcasts were still in black and white. And if you pulled the ring on the doll's back she would talk. My sister had one, and I damn near broke
2: it, trying to figure out, how was it making that sound? There was a little record inside that um, was probably about three inches, two and a half, three inches, and it had what today you would call a trick track. So it had multiple tracks, which were very short snippets, so chatty kathy is hungry chatty kathy says good morning chatty kathy says good night so, so there was maybe 10 different messages on that little record
0: oh chatty kathy oh chatty kathy over oh, tell famous talking doll. we pull the ring and you say eleven different things i love you
3: just pull the ring you never know what she'll say next
0: tell me a story the only story now left to tell is that chatty kathy's made by
2: Jack did a lot of work with Mattel, um, and he actually opened his uh, second plant in Lawndale across the street from Mattel's plant in Hawthorne. During the 60s, he was very big in... In conventional vinyl. I started with him in 1971 and he was just getting out of the paper uh, record business. In Southern California, there was a number of plants and a number of very large plants. Capital had their own plant, RCA had their own plant, Columbia had a big plant up in uh, Santa Maria. What Rainbow Kind of became was the backup plant for a lot of the majors so we did a lot of overflow work we had you know we had our own accounts but we did a lot of overflow work for the big major plants through the 70s we made records and then we moved into cassettes when cassettes became popular and then we moved into cds and dvds but One of the smartest moves we ever made was not getting rid of our record presses. Um, Well, we had 28 presses, and we did get rid of 14, unfortunately, around 1989, 90. The business, really from 85 to 90, the vinyl business was extremely slow. And then CDs got very popular in 86, 87, and we started seeing the demise of the cassette business as well. We always did press some vinyl, but it was down to 5000 a week, 7000 a week. It was really down to nothing. There's three plants in California that are pressing vinyl today. When I started in 71, there was probably 35 just in Southern California and probably 50 in California. With
0: the vinyl market dropping off and the CD becoming the new thing for the industry, there was some talk about getting out of the vinyl business completely
2: like so many other plants were doing. Yeah, we had those talks and we didn't need the space, so we kept them. I mean, that's why we got rid of the 14, because we did need the space when, when we put in the CD equipment. Both Jack and I always felt the vinyl business would be around for quite a long time, but never had expectations of what it turned into today. In 2007, we moved from Santa Monica to here and we moved our record presses. And one of the most common things I heard is, are you crazy? Why are you spending that kind of money on moving the equipment and setting it up? Because it is an expensive installation. And I felt then, and i always said, I think we'll be making vinyl longer than we'll be making CDs. And how right he was. In the late 80s and 1990s, CDs
0: were hailed as the best thing to happen to recorded music ever. They reigned supreme, replacing vinyl as the music delivery system of choice. Its heyday was short-lived. By 2015, the replacer had itself been replaced by a combination of vinyl and digital downloads. Worth noting, during our tour of Rainbow Records, the vinyl pressing room and most all departments were in full operation. The only room sitting quiet was the CD, DVD, duplication department.
2: When we moved here in 2007, we were making about 100,000 CDs a day. I'm lucky to make 150,000 in a week. wonder if there's any chance of selling off that equipment to make more room for vinyl presses. And can you even find vinyl presses today? I had some presses sitting in my warehouse that I had for parts that I rebuilt. So I've added a couple presses that we rebuilt. We're rebuilding another one now recently there's a couple people who have started making presses one in germany that's making a semi-automatic press which means you put the label in by hand you put the material in by hand which is the way rainbow was making them when i started with rainbow in 71 and then there's a company now in toronto making a automatic press and they are seeing some success they're selling a press for about $180,000, and by the time you put the electrical and piping and freight and stuff i mean you got the whole infrastructure you gotta have boilers and towers so to set up a small plant with four presses you got about eight hundred thousand dollars in the equipment and you probably have another four to five hundred thousand on the infrastructure and probably another hundred thousand in buying miscellaneous shrink wrap machines and just so you're, you're looking at about a million and a half bucks to set up a small plant. The equipment's one thing but knowing how to press a record is the next step. Training a, someone to make a record is it takes a, quite a long time. I can train a person on a CD machine in about three weeks. A good operator takes a good six months because every record you press is different, which a lot of people are learning who are getting into the business. They buy equipment, most of them bought used equipment, but even the ones who are buying new equipment. And even with the new machines today, it still takes steam, water, and hydraulics to press a record. It hasn't really changed at all. Maybe how you get it in and out of the die, that's changed a little bit, but uh, the process itself has not changed. So where there was 13 plants two years ago, two and a half years ago, today there's about 24 in the
0: States. Our thanks once again to Steve Sheldon, General Manager of Rainbow Records in Canoga Park, California. And that's the program. Vinyl Snob is produced at the studios of Post Audio in Sacramento, California. Our executive producer is Dana Berry. Theme music composed by Cameron Robbins. For background on the programs, or to drop us a note, visit www.vinylsnob.com. I'm Dave Whitaker. Thanks for listening.